from the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I beseech you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your true and proper service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may test and prove what the will of God is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the word of the Lord. On November 3 in 1920, a young missionary called Eva May Clements died in Rangoon, the capital city of Burma, today Yangon in Myanmar. We know little of Eva's life and there is no known photograph of her. She had been born on July 25, 1897 near Bundaberg on the northern coast of Queensland, Australia. We know nothing more about her until September 1914 when at the age of 17 Eva took a position in the headquarters of the Australasian Union Conference in Sydney, Australia. She worked there for more than five years as a stenographer, the term we used to use in the church. It means a, sec a secretary, essentially. She made a good impression when people remembered her later. The term they would use to describe her was regularly devoted to her work and devoted to the Adventist church. In January 1920, the Southern Asia Division called for a stenographer to serve at the division headquarters in Lucknow, India. Today, of course, we probably wouldn't call an administrative assistant as a missionary, but when there's almost no members in a country, you have to call everyone who's going to work for the church. Australian church leaders passed that call for a stenographer onto Eva, and she accepted. On March 3, 1920, Eva May Clement sailed from Sydney on the P&O steamer Mantua, which you see on the screen. Having landed in what today is Mumbai, she then took the train for an 880-mile journey to Lucknow, where she arrived safely on March 29, 1920. She was assigned to assist the division president, John E. Fulton, uh, and even knew Fulton and his wife Susan from Fulton's time as president of the Australasian Union. Eva seems to have settled well into life in Lucknow. According to her obituary, she entered heartily into her work at the Lucknow office and much enjoyed life. She was popular among her new colleagues thanks to a bright disposition and spirit of helpfulness. A former colleague in Sydney recalled that in her letters that she wrote home, she had no complaints to make concerning the climate or culture in India. And in fact, in one such letter, Eva wrote, I want to tell you, I'm glad I came to India. She'd been there for less than five months when around August 31st, she left with Susan Fulton on an itinerary to Burma, intending to rendezvous in Rangoon with Elder Fulton, who was then in southern India. Susan and Eva traveled first by rail to Kolkata. Remember that. We'll come back to it later. From Kolkata, they traveled by ship and small boat 
to Kamamong, a, re a remote mission station in southeast Burma. And there they stayed for nearly three weeks with the Fulton's daughter, Agnes, and her husband, Eric B. Hare. And you can see them on the screen on their wedding day. The name Eric B. Hare will be known to many of you, I suspect, because he later became a legendary teller of tales from the mission field. At Camamong, they were nearly 80 miles from the nearest European, and I would guess that Eva now felt here, deep in the jungle remote, I'm really getting into the mission field. She and Susan Fulton enjoyed their time there, but Eva suffered from an unknown fever. Still, it seemed to pass, and in October, they moved on to Rangoon, where Elder Fulton had a series of meetings culminating in a 10-day general meeting of the Burma Union Mission, effectively a mission session, a union session. So in early October, Eva was kept busy with Fulton's correspondence as he tried to keep up with the business of the division on the road. Later in the month, she spent time writing programs and copying budgets for the Burma Union session. She kept up this work, Susan Fulton wrote, almost to the day she went to the hospital. For unfortunately, Eva had developed appendicitis and had to be admitted to Rangoon General Hospital. On the penultimate morning of the union session, a Sabbath as it happened, October 30, her appendix was removed without complications. Now, Rangoon General Hospital was a modern institution. She ought to have recovered, but the fever she had contracted in Camamong in September had greatly weakened her. When the Fultons visited Eva in hospital, they noted that though she was quite cheerful, she was anxious that her illness might terminate fatally. And sadly, her fear was justified. On the night of the 31st, she slipped into a coma. She never regained consciousness. In the early morning of November 3, 1920, she passed away. Without the strain and sickness of missionary service, Eva would almost certainly have successfully recuperated from a relatively routine surgery. As Susan Fulton wrote, her, time, her term of service in India was short indeed. Full of grief, she wrote too, we cannot understand why one so young, so useful, so eager to serve, and so greatly needed in the mission field should be so suddenly taken away. Eva May Clements, was just 23 years old. She had spent just seven months in the mission field. In fact, from the time her call was voted by the General Conference Executive Committee to the time she was buried was a mere 10 months. Some of you, I am going to guess, are wondering why am I telling you this story of an unknown and apparently unimportant young woman? Partly it is precisely because Eva seems so inconsequential. She is not alone in being forgotten. Friends, too often we tell just the same few stories from our past and we ignore dedicated men and women who literally took their lives in their hands but could do so because they had put their lives in the hands of the Holy Spirit. And yet most of them are moldering in their graves in obscurity and Adventists today know nothing of them. Another reason for telling you about Eva May Clements is that though she disappeared from history for nearly a hundred years, 
some parts of her story can be recovered. We know little of what she thought or felt, but at least we're able to piece together a timeline for the last year of her life, if not much earlier, and we can do that to a degree impossible for many other missionaries, and there were many, many Adventist missionaries who died in the mission field. Sometimes all we know of them is the date that they died. Eva stands for them. Her experiences remind us that every missionary had a story. No matter how anonymous they were in death, they were wives and daughters, sons and husbands, beloved in life, lamented in death. And I'm also telling you this story because Eva's fate was not uncommon. And I don't just mean in dying in the mission field. Eva's story is so tragic partly because her passing seems so pointless. It seems almost meaningless. She perished prematurely, having never accomplished great deeds for Jesus because she never had the chance to. She was cut down in the prime of life, and yet that was because she was willing to give her life in order that others might have eternal life. And in that willingness to serve, in her willingness to die, her life was not meaningless not in the eyes of her heavenly father. And yet many other missionaries died having only had limited opportunities to make an impact. Friends, today we often have too romantic a view of missionary service. In 1902, William Spicer, then secretary of the Foreign Mission Board, set things out starkly but clearly. Those who go into the fields, he wrote, must be ready to lay down their lives and at the least must be ready to lay everything they have in the world upon the altar of service. Spicer knew what he was talking about. He had suddenly and unexpectedly become superintendent of the India mission when his predecessor, Doris Robinson, was struck down with smallpox, a death that Spicer witnessed at his bedside. All missionaries, not just Adventists, had to be ready to lay down their lives. In 1900, there were 17,400 Protestant missionaries worldwide, more than 92% of them from Western countries. Only one in six was working in Africa because at this stage, as one historian writes, there were still no answers to the killer diseases, malaria and sleeping sickness, and we can add black water fever, yellow fever. In West Africa, for example, the casualty rate among Western missionaries was so high that in the late 19th century, they were expected to live just two years. And this poor life expectancy was true of Adventist missionaries. Often they quickly succumbed to, and they frequently died of, a range of tropical illnesses, various fevers and infectious diseases, of course, the two-year average implies both shorter and longer spans, but all clustering around the two-year mark. And I'm going to give you a number of actual examples, and I could, if time allowed, add many more. Eva Clements was far from unique in the short period she served before dying. The brief snippets of missionary lives I'll share with you, lives cut short remind us of the cost of service. 
They also remind us, though, of the cost of building up this church that we know and love today. When the Seventh-day Adventist Church was established 156 years ago, there were only around 3,500 members found only in the northeast and midwest of the United States and a handful in Canada. Now its members are found all around the world. We too easily take that outcome for granted. It was achieved by God's blessing, of course, but it was also achieved by commitment and sacrifice to a degree that today is rare. Past generations of Adventists willingly undertook what the Apostle Paul called the Christian's proper service to God, presenting their bodies as living sacrifices. This afternoon, I'm going to be telling the stories of some martyrs of Adventist mission. The stories come from a book that I've just published uh, with Pacific Press called A Living Sacrifice. As I wrote it, I have to tell you, truly I was humbled and deeply moved by what I found in the sources. And I truly feel privileged to share these stories with you today. I hope that you will find them inspiring and that you will want to share them in turn. And if so, the book includes most of the stories you'll hear as well as many others, and so I hope it can be a valuable resource. But one reason these stories are inspiring is because so many of these missionaries were young. Many were women, many were committed lay people, and some were self-supporting rather than on the church's payroll, but all were willing to pay the ultimate price. We still need that willingness, that spirit of sacrifice today. As much as this church has grown, there are still areas where the Adventist presence is minimal and tenuous. And so we continue to need missionaries today and the people who support them. The story of Eva Clements and other forgotten heroes of this church, the church for which they gave their lives, these stories have the power to move us. I believe they can inspire young and old to recommit to the prophetic mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. On October 3, 1895, a party of American missionaries disembarked at the port of Cape Coast, uh, which you see here, in what was then called the Gold Coast, a British colony in West Africa, today Ghana. They were not the first Seventh-day Adventists in West Africa. They actually joined a body of local believers led by a man called Francis Dolphin, who had been convicted of the Seventh-day Sabbath by reading Adventist literature and who wrote several times to the General Conference saying, please send us missionaries. And in response, eventually came a team led by Elder Dudley U. Hale, who you see on the screen. Hale was accompanied by, th accompanied by three other missionaries of whom we know little. G.P. Riggs, a coal porter, Two nurses, George and Eva Carr, along with the Carr's two children. The photograph that you'll see on the screen now shows Hale, the Carr's, and Francis Dolphine. He's the man standing in the middle at the back. There's no known photo of Riggs. Things didn't go well. Twenty days had not passed after their arrival before Elder Hale was stricken with the Blackwater fever. He recovered, but by mid-1896, within eight months of their arrival at Cape Coast, 
both the car's children had died. Riggs was sent to Liverpool in England suffering from dysentery, but despite treatment, Riggs never recovered and he died on January 8, 1897. From his arrival at Cape Coast to his death in Liverpool was just 15 months. And by the spring of 1897, George and Eva Carr had suffered repeatedly from Blackwater fever and on April 16, they too sailed for England, having served for 18 months. Hale tried to carry on. He wrote forlornly, I am left alone with the work here. Well, in fact, he had Dolphine and other local believers, but he was suffering chronic, severe malaria. On June 3, 1897, he sailed for England. Hale had been a missionary for 21 months. Three of the original party had perished and none had lasted even two years. Meanwhile, on July 5, 1894, a party of seven Seventh-day Adventists had arrived in Bulawayo, the new capital of the newest part of the British Empire, Rhodesia, which spanned what today are modern Zambia and Zimbabwe. The Adventists established a mission station at Sulusi in present-day Zimbabwe. Most of them returned soon after to South Africa, leaving a South African layman, Fred Sparrow, in charge of the property, which today, of course, is Seleucia University. You saw the picture before. In July 1895, a second party of missionaries arrived, and they stayed. They included Elder George B. Tripp, who became the first superintendent of the Seleucia mission, and his wife Mary, and his son George Jr., George Sr.'s first wife had died and he and Mary had only married in March and then immediately departed America for South Africa. And as we'll see, many missionaries married right before they left for foreign service. Other missionaries in the 1895 party included Elder William H. Anderson, known by his middle name of Harry. He was only 25 and his wife Nora, who you see in the photo, was younger, though the photo was taken later. There were also a Dr. A.S. Carmichael and Fred Sparrow's brother Chris and his wife Mahala. They helped to manage the mission farm. They were lay people. And you can see Chris in this picture. He's shown with some of the local farm laborers in their families. In 1897, Frank Armitage, another American missionary, joined the group at Seleucy along with his wife Annie and their 10-year-old daughter Violet. They were to serve as missionaries less than 12 months because in 1898, as Harry Anderson wrote to church leaders, an epidemic, almost a plague of malaria, swept across Rhodesia, and Seleucia was not spared. Dr. Carmichael contracted the disease on February 14. Two weeks later, he died. Elder Tripp conducted the funeral, and the next day he collapsed. On March 7, he died and was buried. You see his grave, his tomb here. He had served at the mission just three years. On the same day, March 7, Chris Sparrow's young daughter, whose name we don't even know, died. Her mother, Mahala, was sick, but she survived for the moment, but later she was laid to rest by the side of her daughter in the cemetery at Seleucia. And on April 8, 1898, George Tripp Jr. died and was buried next to his father. Nora Anderson, the widowed Mary Tripp, and the three members of the Armitage family were all suffering badly, and so they were all sent by train to Cape Town. But Annie Armitage never reached there. 
She died and was buried by the railway track along the way. Now, Harry and Nora Anderson were reunited at Seleucia and they raised a daughter there called Naomi, but Seleucia's cemetery still bears silent witness to the mortality rate of mission in Matabili land. Many missionaries are buried there. But there are other graveyards that testify enduringly to the high cost of proclaiming the everlasting gospel to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. In June 1903, Joseph Watson arrived in Malamulo Mission Station in Malawi, then what was called British Central Africa. Now, Thomas Branch had only established the Adventist mission in Malamulo the year before. So Watson was one of the first Adventist missionaries to serve there. His family farmed outside the small town of Bainbridge in the north of Ireland. Joseph and several other family members had been converted in 1898 when Joseph was 36, and by 1900 he had decided to volunteer for mission service. He wasn't a pastor. His job was to run the mission farm. Sadly, Joseph contracted cerebral malaria, and he died on December 11, 1903. His grave is at Malamulo. You see it there. He had only served as a missionary for six months. On February 20, 1904, Christian Wunderlich, a layman in his 50s, sailed from Hamburg for Dar es Salaam to join the recently founded mission in German East Africa, today part of Tanzania. Like Watson, Wunderlich was a layman too. His job was to help with construction of the mission buildings, and he also managed a steam traction engine. But in 1905, he and two other missionaries became seriously ill and were sent back to Germany. Despite being treated at Friedenshaus Seminary for two weeks, Friedenshaus Sanitarium, I, I should say, for two weeks, Christian passed away on October 31, 1905. He was buried in the cemetery at Friedenshaus. You see his tomb. And there he awaits the resurrection. The president of the German Union wrote that his modest tombstone was placed where students would see it. As Friedensau is the site of the, the seminary. Placed where students would see it and be reminded of the spirit that it takes to build up missions. Christian Wunderlich had spent less than two years in Africa. But meanwhile, starting from around 1905, Adventist mission in West Africa finally started to make headway. Three years later, Thomas and Catherine French, both teachers, accepted a call to work in education in Sierra Leone, arriving there in May 1908. Thomas was 25, Catherine was just 21. Both suffered from malaria in Sierra Leone, but both survived. But after two and a half years, they were moved to the Gold Coast and to the mission station of Axim. They had been there only a few days when on January 17, 1911, Catherine was taken ill with a severe attack of blackwater fever. This is how Thomas described it in her obituary. She lived only one more day, dying of heart failure on January 18, 1911, at the age of 24. In writing of Catherine's passing, Thomas articulates the bewilderment, the distress, and yet the determination typical of many Adventist missionaries in this period, he wrote, as I stood beside my dying companion a few years ago 
and realized that my own strength was fast failing, in my perplexity, my mind turned to my brethren and sisters at home who have so nobly supported this cause by their prayers and by their means. And the question came forcibly to me, what can this crisis mean? We appeal to our people at home to support the languishing hands of our workers in these heathen strongholds. Brethren and sisters, seek God earnestly in behalf of his cause in West Africa. Thomas was exhausted mentally, spiritually, and physically, and in February, he was sent home to regain his health. He and Catherine were replaced in Axim by two lay missionaries, C.E.F. Thompson and his wife, whose name we don't know. We know little of Thompson, but he was Jamaican, well-educated, a skillful writer, and as a studio photograph shows, he was a very stylish dresser. The Thompsons had served in Sierra Leone in 1908 and then the Gold Coast Colony in 1909. Although Thompson was not ordained, he was a successful soul winner. The rare photograph you're about to see on your screen shows members of the Nsimba Church with David Babcock, the West African Mission Superintendent, and Thompson, who I have highlighted, And, you know, we have many photographs in the archives of white men sitting in the middle of a group of Africans, islanders. They're very redolent of an age of imperialism. It's nice to have a photograph in which there's a dark-skinned man sitting in the center as well. In March 1911, he and his wife replaced the Frenchers in Axim, but Thompson contracted Bright's disease. He eventually left Ghana to seek treatment for his failing kidneys, but he stayed too long. He left it too late. And after having served in West Africa for fewer than four years, C.E.F. Thompson died in Freetown on March 25, 1912. Less than two weeks later, Charles Lindsay Bowen, known as Lynn, who was age 31, his wife Ida, who was four years older, and their daughter Ethel, who was six, sailed for South Africa. They took up station at Tsungvezi Mission in what was then Rhodesia, today Zimbabwe, though it's 400 miles east of Seleucia. The photograph here that you'll see shows Lynn before he left the U.S. No, that's the, there we go, thank you. Uh, the only photos we know of Ida and Ethel are from their passport photos taken in 1920. In 1913, there was an outbreak of smallpox at Tsungvezi, and Lynn contracted the disease. Chris Sparrow brought supplies from Seleucia, and he stayed to help nurse the sick. Ida recorded, Lynn had complications which made it very difficult and painful for him to breathe. Sparrow later described Lynn's three weeks of suffering in frankly grueling detail, and recorded his final painful prayer that if it was the Lord's will for him to recover, it might be speedily, and if not, that the Lord release him from the agony he was in. On June 2, 1913, Lynn Bowen passed away, aged 32. He had served at Sangvezi just a year. News of his passing was received the next day at the 1913 General Conference session, which probably seems remarkable, but the telegram had reached Sangvezi, and Ida had wired the GC headquarters her telegram had a simple but profoundly sad message, 
my husband died yesterday at 1 p.m. It was not Africa alone where Adventist pioneers risked death. It was a danger to in Central America and the Caribbean, so close to the United States. For example, Albert and Ina Fisher went as missionaries to the newly acquired American colony of Puerto Rico to open up the work in May 1901. You see a photograph of Ina here. Less than six months later, Albert became seriously ill. After 36 days during which he suffered five severe hemorrhages, Albert died of typhoid fever in Mayaguez on March 23, 1902. Elder A.J. Hazmer, who helped to nurse Albert on his deathbed, hints at the grief felt by the widow writing back to the states that Ina, who survived her fever, knows that the Lord has made no mistake, although she cannot now see why this blow has come. But his report dwelt on Albert. He was afraid, Hazmer wrote, that many would think that he and his wife had made a mistake in coming to this field. He wished me to express his strong belief that the Lord had sent them and that they did not regret the move they had taken, but that if the Lord should call him to rest a while, he was glad to be found at his post of duty. And Hazmer concluded his report, who will step in and carry on the work begun? In 1905, Charles Enoch, a nurse and masseur who'd worked at Portland Sanitarium, went with his wife, also a nurse, and their young child to the West Indies as medical missionaries. The Enoch family landed at Barbados in November 1905 and opened treatment rooms in Bridgetown. But in 1906, they relocated 200 miles to the southwest to Port of Spain, Trinidad, where Charles's brother George had served since 1901. The Enochs opened a new treatment room, but they weren't able to treat Charles himself when he contracted yellow fever on February the 1st, 1907. He suffered with the intense symptoms of that virulent disease and died four days later. He had been in Trinidad for one month and in the Caribbean for a little over 14 months. But he was neither the first nor the last Adventist missionary to die in Trinidad. In fact, as another missionary, Ovid E. Davis, wrote, this makes three of our workers laid away in the port of Spain. But Charles's brother, George Enoch, was almost upbeat. He used words similar to those that Hazmer had used about Fisher. I am thankful, George wrote of his brother, that he died at his post of duty. Thankful. We have no regrets to offer, but take this bereavement as one more link to bind our lives on the altar of missionary endeavor. Now, George acknowledged that our hearts are bowed in sadness, but his real concern is evident when he writes, still the thought presses heavily upon us. Will this branch of the work in the West Indies, which we strove together so hard to get upon its feet, be now left to languish? for the lack of consecrated workers. Friends, again and again, missionaries cared as much for the future of the work as they cared for themselves or their deceased friends and family. Later that year, aged just 23, Robert Price was called from Kansas to the Watchman Publishing House in Trinidad. Robert and his wife, Bessie, accepted the call and in September 1907, with their two-year-old son, Robert Jr., they sailed from New York to Port of Spain. On May 26, 
1908, Robert was stricken with fever. Four doctors attended him, but he passed this life on May 31. Although delirious with pain for much of his last 36 hours, he was conscious at intervals, and an hour before he died, he asked the Adventists around his bed to sing to him, Jesus, lover of my soul. Robert Price was buried in Port of Spain, having been a missionary in Trinidad not quite eight months. Other islands far from the Caribbean could also be dangerous places in terms of disease. In 1897, two missionaries, new missionaries, landed on the largest island of the Japanese archipelago, Honshu. The first Adventist missionaries to Japan. William Granger, along with his wife Elizabeth, aged 53 and 52, respectively. At their age, it was courageous to accept a call to go as missionaries to Japan. In the photograph you'll see in a moment, this is a wonderful photo, William and Elizabeth are pictured in Tokyo with a local person who was studying the Bible with them. But in early October 1899, having been in Japan for two years, Granger contracted an unknown fever, and after suffering for more than three weeks, he died on October 31, 1899. In June 1902, two young physicians, Alfred Martin Vollmer and Maud Otis, graduated from the American Medical Missionary College. They are shown here in photographs that were taken for their graduation. The following spring, Alfred accepted a call to serve at the sanitarium in Samoa. And perhaps the call was conditional on him being married, which was typical of the era, because soon after, on July 14, 1903, the two former classmates were married. He was 27, she was 24. They sailed in October and arrived in Apia in Samoa on November 12, 1903. And in Apia, almost 10 months later, their only child, a daughter, Dorothy, was born. A colleague wrote of how Alfred loved the work in that field and left only when compelled to on account of his health for Alfred had contracted tuberculosis. In October 1905, not quite two years after arriving in Apia, Alfred sailed for the States for treatment and his family with him. The colleague who I quoted a moment ago wrote that Volmer left with the deepest regret, but by then he was very sick. In fact, it was thought he might die on the voyage. But his obituary observes the Lord was merciful and spared his life to reach his home. But Alfred didn't long survive his return. The obituary soberly records he suffered a great deal in the last three weeks of his life. Alfred Vollmer died on February 15, 1906, eight days short of his 30th birthday. Maud was left husbandless at the age of 27, and Dorothy, fatherless at 18 months, the result of just 23 months of, of mission service. The Volmers had been joined in Samoa by Sarah Moretta Young, a Polynesian woman who had graduated as a nurse from Sa Sydney Sanitarium in Australia in 1903 and went to Samoa in May 1904. Four months after Volmer's death, in mid-July 1906, Sarah died of pneumonia. According to an Adventist physician who worked with her, she was loved by all who knew her. And her last letter to friends from Samoa survives. It was written on the 1st of July, 1906, not long before her death. 
And the letter urged, may many more be found who are ready to say, here am I, send me. Sarah perished two years and two months after she joined the staff of Samoa Sanitarium. In January 1915, two young Australians, Hubert Leonard Tolhurst and Pearl Phillips were married. And you can see Pearl in this picture, taken with her family eight years earlier. You can see they had many daughters. When they married, Hubert was 25, Pearl just 24. Both were graduates of Australasian Missionary College, today's Avondale. And within weeks of their wedding, they sailed for the Tongan Archipelago. Four years later, the global influenza epidemic reached Tonga. Although Hubert and Pearl toiled long hours ministering to the sick and stricken people, as a colleague recorded, they succumbed themselves. And then Pearl contracted pneumonia and gradually grew weaker. She died literally in Hubert's arms on March 14, 1919, four days after her 28th birthday. Hubert wrote Pearl's obituary for the Australian church paper. His anguish could not easily be articulated given the emotional constraints of the era. But as with other grieving spouses, it becomes evident in little points of detail that would only be noted in a loved one. It is there, for example, when he writes, she suffered much, knowing no bodily comfort for many weeks, and often the cough was most distressing. He ends the obituary, the writer had to conduct the service. As with Ida Bowen's telegram from Tsongvesi six years earlier, terseness in the face of tragedy hints at depths of emotion. Not long before Hubert and Pearl married, another pair of Avondale graduates were wed. In late 1914, having just graduated, Norman Wiles volunteered to serve in the New Hebrides, today's nation of Vanuatu. But Norman was single, and the Australasian Union Committee felt that a missionary ought to be married. But the committee members could see a solution, because Norman had been friends at college with a woman called Alma Butts who herself was the daughter of American missionaries who'd served right across the South Pacific, and so the union executive committee suggested that he could marry her. Initially, she wasn't happy. <laughs> but she later wrote, Norman never proposed in the usual way. We simply felt that if this was the action of the committee, the Lord was leading, and that settled the matter. They were very happily married, I'm happy to say. They married, in fact, on December 14, 1914, you see them here, and in 1915 they sailed for the island of Atchin in the New Hebrides, where they were stationed for several months. In February 1916, when Norman was 23 and Alma 21, these are astonishingly young people, they became the only missionaries of any church on the island of Malakula. The tribes living there were known as warlike cannibals, and they had murdered and eaten both missionaries and European traders before. But Norman and Alma spent time getting to know the local people, learning their languages and making friends. And this is evident in this wonderful photo. It's one of my favorite Adventist photos because I, want you to, I hope you can see, do you notice how relaxed they are? These are people with whom they feel comfortable. 
But by November 1917, Norman was suffering badly from repeated attacks of malaria. After two and a half years in the mission field, church leaders in Australia recognized that, quote, brother and sister Wiles had been working to the point of breaking down their health, and therefore they were brought home. Norman pastored in Australia for two years, but in January 1920, to their delight, they returned to Malakula, January. Less than four months later, on the 1st of May, 1920, a Sabbath, Norman succumbed to black water fever. Four days later, Alma confided her anxiety to her diary in terms that are still distressing to read. Hard as it all was, my father strengthened my faith. Again and again I pled that if it could be to his honor and glory, my darling might be spared. But he gave me strength to add, thy will be done. On May 5, 1920, Norman Wiles died after five days of terrible suffering. Alma washed her husband's body, dressed it in a new shirt, covered it in a linen shroud, and then with the help of the local tribes people, she buried her husband. Norman was only 27 years old when he died. Alma was 25 when she was widowed. In both periods in the New Hebrides, together they had not served three years as missionaries. Well, we could tell stories of, 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 uh, of China, of Southeast Asia, of the Middle East, but time doesn't permit. We'll go to the Southern Asia Division, which is the home to the remains of many Adventist missionaries. Earlier I mentioned the death of Dorothy Robinson, who you see on the screen, but he didn't die alone. Frederick W. Brown, a nurse, his wife Catherine, a teacher, and their two children sailed for India on December 14, 1898. This was the teaser I gave you this morning. And I said, what would you do if you were told to leave an area because of illness? They arrived in Calcutta on February 9, 1899, where they joined the staff of the mission located on Bow Bazaar Street. You see a group photo here. But in the summer, Fred and Katie were sent northwest to Ranchi, the capital of the state of Bihar, among the first Adventist missionaries to work in the north of India in that part. But in the autumn of 1899, a smallpox epidemic broke out in Bihar. Most of the, if not all, of the British colonial officials and merchants left the region, and they advised the Adventists, leave until the epidemic has run its course. But instead, the Brown family remained, and they were joined by Robinson and his wife, Edna, who you see here. The four missionaries actually moved to Karmatar, where there was a small Adventist school and orphanage, and where the epidemic was raging with particular intensity. All four worked closely with smallpox victims, and all four contracted the disease. Edna Robinson and Katie Brown suffered but survived, their husbands were not so fortunate. On December 21, 1899, Fred Brown passed away, having served as a missionary for little more than 10 months. Eight days later, Doris Robinson passed away too after three years in India. Robinson's deputy, William Spicer, traveled up from Calcutta, and as he later wrote, I was with him in his last conscious hours. I told him that if he must lay down his work, then perhaps God would use that to draw attention to India's needs. He replied with his swollen lips, perhaps, perhaps.
perhaps, I hope, they were his last words, spoken on December 29, 1899. He and Frank Brown were buried together in Kalmatar, and here you see a, a near-contemporary photograph of their graves in the cemetery. 21 years later, of course, Eva Clements died in Rangoon. Her death, after only seven months in the mission field, ended a bad year and a half for the Southern Asian Division, during which six church workers died. There was another missionary, an American, had died in Burma, and four American and British missionaries died in India. Friends, if you calculate the mortality rate for Adventists in the Southern Asia Division in those two years, it was two and a half times worse than the, the mortality rate for other Europeans and British in India. Adventists were two and a half times more likely to die. Well, 1919 and 1920 may have been especially bad years, but had they? And in fact, how dangerous was mission service? Individual stories are often moving, but are they indicative of wider trends? You know, my job title includes the word statistics in it, and I'm contractually obliged to share statistics in every presentation I give. So what's the trend? To what extent are the stories that I've been telling you typical for Adventist missionaries? You can see from this chart, it shows the annual number of missionary deaths in the mission field the deaths each year from 1903 through 1939 when the Second World War started. I want to draw to your attention that despite the death toll, there were always enough volunteers to replace the fallen and indeed to add to their number. You can see in this next chart that the number of new missionaries going out always exceeded the number of deaths. Those at the back won't be able to see too well. The blue line shows the number of new missionaries being sent out. The red line, show, red line shows the number of missionary deaths. There were always more men and women, mostly young men and women, willing to go. But at the same time, friends, let's not understate what they were signing up to do. The last chart brings home powerfully what they faced because this shows the death toll calculated as deaths per hundred new missionaries. And for those of you at the back who can't see, I think you can see the trend. And what you can see is that in certain years, you're getting 12, 14, 16 of every hundred missionaries dying. Those aren't such good odds. If the mortality rate of Adventist missionaries in India after World War I was bad, the death toll of Adventist missionaries in general up to World War II was such that no one could be sanguine about going as a missionary. And yet, and yet, and yet, committed men and women still went to the mission field. And they served there, if they survived, often for decades. In my book, you'll find stories of missionaries who served for 30, 40, 50 years, in addition to the stories of missionaries who died. And here's the astonishing thing, the humbling thing. All the Adventists who went as missionaries up to around 1940 went 
knowing that there was a very strong chance that they would die in a foreign land. Much of the information, many of the quotations I've shared with you today are from reports published in the church papers in the homelands. And this is in the era when church papers were received and read in almost every Adventist home. Many Seventh-day Adventists grew up reading the stories of the sacrifices, the suffering, the early deaths of missionaries, but they were not deterred. Willingness to step into the place of a departed missionary is perhaps most poignantly evident in the story of Joseph Watson. Do you remember the Irish farmer who died after six months in Malamulo? After church leaders in Cape Town received news of his death, they wired their counterparts in London, who then sent a telegram to Bainbridge in Northern Ireland. The Watsons farm was somewhere out of town and so a messenger had to come. And Albert Watson, Joseph's younger brother, Albert Watson, was plowing in the fields, doing the winter plowing because this was January. A cousin was with Albert when the Royal Mail messenger arrived, said, here's a telegram. You can imagine, why are we receiving a telegram? The cousin always remembered Albert opening the telegram, reading it, quietly stating that Joseph was dead, and then saying, I think I'd better go out and replace him. How many of us would react that way to news of a beloved older brother dying after just six months in the mission field? What are the odds? And the cousin, incredulous, asked, Albert, are you sure? Albert answered, yes, I will go. He spent the next 29 years in Africa. We need to draw to a conclusion. I'm going to pose a rhetorical question and answer it and then make a final point. Why did so many missionaries die? Well, a tendency to overwork is one explanation and I could give another presentation on Adventists who overworked themselves into early graves, but that's for an, another occasion. <laughs> but that doesn't explain it alone. The reason so many Adventist missionaries died is because missionaries of that period, the late 19th, early 20th centuries, did not remain in mission compounds. They didn't remain in enclaves or institutions. They got out, they got down to work, they got their hands dirty. They worked for local people and among those people. Many Westerners, most Westerners, were influenced by racism. They tried to seclude themselves as much as possible from indigenous populations. Seventh-day Adventists wanted as much as possible to be among the people so they could emulate the teaching and healing ministry of Jesus Christ. In consequence, Adventist missionaries were exposed to disease and so they died. They died because of their deep desire to tell people of their Savior. And one could give many examples of that desire, but perhaps the best comes from the woman with whom we began, Eva Mae Clements. And so we'll conclude with her too. And with her last known letter that she wrote, not knowing it would be her last letter, 
a letter to family and friends in Australia. In Kolkata, en route to Rangoon, she and Susan Fulton visited a temple and they saw Hindu pilgrims worshiping before an image of the goddess Kali. What she saw stayed with Eva. In her letter back to Australia, she describes how the people are standing about seven or eight feet deep before this huge monster and the guide cannot make himself heard for the shouting and shuffling in the endeavor to worship the cruel deception of the enemy. But Eva May's mind was on not the image, but on the Indian people, for whom she continues, no privation, no sacrifice is too great for them to make in order to behold their God, many having come long distances for this purpose. And perhaps she reflected on how far she had traveled to be there. But what was uppermost in her mind was how those people might come to know Jesus. She writes, I pray for deeper consecration on the part of myself and others here, and for an inflow of workers from the homeland to this needy field. There is a great need and so much to do. You who are young and can learn the language of the ones who are most wanted, you who hate the works of darkness and will with the aid of the lamp divine let his rays penetrate the gloom. Picture these poor people for whom Christ died. How can we let them know? Those last words, how can we let them know? Friends, I'll tell you, they've haunted my mind since I read them for the first time seven years ago. They are powerful partly because Eva was not a pastor. She wasn't a doctor or not a missionary leader. Many people would say she was just a secretary. But her heart for mission was as strong and her zeal for sharing Jesus was as burning as anyone's. And that I find inspiring. But Eva's words are also powerful because they describe a need that is still urgent. Despite the extraordinary growth of the Seventh-day Adventist Church around the world, built on the sacrifices of missionaries, there are still billions of people for whom Christ died who do not know of him. We have still yet to reach in large part the people of China, India, and Southeast Asia, of the Middle East, North Africa, and West Africa, and of great cities around the world, including in Europe, which once was Christendom. And so Eva's question is still there. Picture these poor people for whom Christ died. How can we let them know? This is what I think. Those of us who live where the church is strong need to commit ourselves to contributing in whatever way we can to the work of the church in the areas where it is weak. How can we contribute? By praying, by using technology skillfully, by giving, and some of us by going. But the key point is each of us has a part to play and a contribution to make. How can we let them know? We need each of us to recommit ourselves right here, right now, to the mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. With this audience, you may think, well, surely that's 
a given that you're committed. I just want to challenge you and challenge myself. How committed are you? Are you willing to do whatever it takes? That was the case with the people whose stories we've told. We need to recapture that spirit, the spirit of selflessness, which led many Adventists in the past and will require some in the future to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.